Welcome to another edition of the Reporters Roundtable on Radio Chat Skill. I'm your host, Patricio Robayo. Today, I'm joined with journalist Liam Mayo of the River Reporter, Chris Raleigh with the Shawanagak Journal, Joseph Abraham of the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pontuso of the Times Union. We just had an election, and I wanted to explore in this episode exactly what happened here locally. Nationally, the red wave was expected, but didn't happen. But the picture here in, in the Sullivan Catskill, Northeast Pennsylvania area, the Hudson Valley area, that wasn't so much the case. Some seats have flipped, went from Democrat to Republican. And so, Philip, I want to speak to you about that. What is sort of your outlook on this election that just happened here? And I know you focused on the New York 17 congressional race. Yeah, we published a deep dive on that race um, last week, about, or about a week and a half ago as we're speaking. I think that's an interesting one to talk about. And I know I, I spoke about it with with Radio Catskill, I think the following day. But we have a little bit more info now. And, and the reason I think it's interesting is because there are, we sort of identified four factors in that race that determined the outcome. A couple of them are specific to the dynamics of that race. Um, and then others are, I think, reflective of the red wave that you describe in uh, in the Hudson Valley, and I think also in Long Island as well. So um, those, those kind of four factors that we talked about, one of them is the effectiveness of Republican messaging on issues such as crime and the economy. So if you look at the seats that re where Republicans did well in New York, it's really in kind of area, suburban New York areas around New York City. So Long Island went totally red in the in the Hudson Valley. Uh, there were three congressional races. Those three seats were all held by Democrats. Two of them flipped to Republicans um, earlier this month. And then the one Democrat that did hold on, Pat Ryan beating Colin Schmidt, he he barely won. It, I, I think the final total was by less than less than two points. There was also, I think, just a lot more energy among Republicans this election cycle. I think Zeldin just brought out more more enthusiasm and, and more voters, certainly than um, than Kathy Hochul seemed to. And I think that there was there was kind of a divergence in uh, the effectiveness of the state's respective parties in organizing. There has been there have been kind of loud calls in the weeks since the election for Jay Jacobs, the uh, the chair of the state Democratic Party, to step down. About a week ago, uh, there was a, a number of influential Democrats, including many, many state senators, and I think the Orange County Democratic Party and the Dutchess County Democratic Party signed on to this as well, signed a statement urging uh, Governor Kathy Hochul to replace Jacobs as party chair, basically saying that he did um, you know, a pretty poor job in, in organizing to get out the vote. Um, in this election, but with there were are there are a couple of issues in NY17 that I think are specific to that race that are worth touching on. Just briefly, one that we identified is the Republican winners' familiarity in the district. So that's State Assemblyman Mike Lawler. He has represented parts of Rockland County in the State Assembly for only two years, but his family goes back generations in that district. And his opponent, the incumbent. U.S. Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, he jumped districts uh, after redistricting earlier this year to run in NY17 as opposed to NY18, where he served for the last decade. And that drew a lot of criticism from progressive Democrats because in doing that, he pushed out a, a popular uh, incumbent progressive legislator named Mondaire Jones. 
Maloney, I, th I think the calculus, and he, he's talked about this a little bit for him running in 17 as opposed to 18, is that 17 now includes most of, I think actually all of Westchester County, or certainly uh, more of Westchester County than um, it did previously. And he thought he could scoop in, you know, more Democratic vote there. But Rockland County is also new to that district or new to Maloney. Um, and he had never represented anybody in Rockland County before and didn't seem to make as much of an effort on the ground there until the closing weeks of the campaign cycle when polls indicated a tightening race. Um, Lawler told us that he thought uh, he thought Maloney didn't really take it seriously uh, until uh, a couple of weeks before election day, didn't really take his challenge seriously. And then we had a, a pollster from Marist College tell us that um, law, lawless familiarity within the district or and with the district more broadly and Maloney's lack thereof was a single most telling factor in the race. And I think another interesting thing unique to this race was that the decision by Maloney to run in 17 as opposed to 18 really, as I, as I hinted at earlier, kind of enraged uh, progressive Democrats, especially those people who had been in the old 17th district who had been represented by Mondaire Jones. Listeners might remember that in uh, over the summer, uh, Maloney faced the primary challenge by State Senator Alessandro Biagi, who really criticized him hard for um, for coming into that race and kind of bigfooting Mondaire Jones out. Maloney ended up winning that primary pretty handily, but um, we had several Democrats on the ground tell us that they would go out and vote for Maloney in the general election, but they really weren't enthusiastic about him at all. They they didn't really feel motivated to to kind of spread the word, really, and kind of get out the vote and, and mobilize for him. One guy told us that uh, the message was clear from Democratic leadership at the state and county levels, like it or not, this is our guy now. And so by contrast, Lawler, uh, I think, was on the ground campaigning pretty hard, you know, for a year and a half. and. Um, I think was able to pull in more of the Republican vote that was there in the district. I think one thing that's worth noting too is that this district, the voters in this district went for Biden by 10 points just two years ago. Um, and then the, the the fourth and final, and probably ultimately maybe the most telling factor, and this is also related to, I think, the familiarity within the district, is that there are a lot of Orthodox voters in the 17th district I talked to the co-founder of an organization called the Orthodox Jewish Public Affairs Council, which is based in Spring Valley. And he told me that he thinks about 21,000 Orthodox voters turned out for the midterms. And other than in the Hasidic village of New Square, which has about 2,800 voters and where leaders endorsed Maloney, Lala got 80% of the Orthodox vote in a race You know, he won by just... 2000 votes or so that made a huge difference and, and he drew it he drew a contrast with um what happened uh up in ny18 where in curious joel a satmar hasidic community there pat ryan netted 1500 votes in a race he won by just over 2000 votes so that ended up being pretty telling um in that race as well so those are kind of the main the main factors in ny17 some of them, I think, are are generalizable to to the entire race, but there's certainly some interesting stuff that happened in this particular campaign. Leah Mayo from the River Reporter, let's turn to you. 
here locally, it said the red wave has sort of happened. Some seats have flipped, like New York 19th and New York 17th. Also, in Sullivan Catskills, we had some issues in some polling places with long lines due to what, from what I understand, is a shortage of poll workers and some malfunctioning printers. Liam, what is your general outlook on this past election? I think Philip did a really good job talking about what happened generally in this area, just to throw a few more numbers on that. Uh, the New York Times put out a graphic saying that New York, while historically Democratic, saw an 11-point uh, shift toward the Republican Party in this cycle. And as Philip mentioned, there have been calls for Democratic Party chair uh, Jay Jacobs to resign. Calls also in support of him. Uh, recently, Ann Hart, the Sullivan County Democratic chair, signed on to a uh, sort of third letter staking sort of a middle ground saying we're not here to point fingers, but we are trying to do better going forward. And they asked for a couple of um, structural changes to the way the Democratic Party is operating in New York to sort of give them a better chance going forward. And yeah, um, for the long lines in Sullivan County and the election difficulties in Sullivan County, yeah, there were a couple of people who came to the Sullivan County Legislature last Thursday talking about um, problems they'd had at the polls, um, talking about lines that were, I believe, over an hour long. I went out to a couple of polling sites on election day and found that there were several where lines were between half an hour and 45 minutes long. I didn't make it out to the end of the county where uh, the, the other people were talking about hour-long plus lines, but it it was definitely the case broadly that there were fairly long lines. One of the factors that came up as a potential cause for that was the use of printers at the polls. The way it worked this election cycle was instead of having a stack of pre-printed ballots that you could just hand to voters, there were uh, pr printers at each poll site and they would print off a ballot after they checked you in and they would hand you that ballot. I talked with a poll worker at the Highlands polls where they didn't actually have very long lines. And she said the process of printing out the ballot didn't actually slow things down very much. You kind of just printed it out and it handed it to the voter as part of the election cycle or as part of the voting process. But people who came to the legislature said that when printers broke down or when the tech malfunctioned, it was really it, it took a long time to get people out to the polling stations to fix those printers. So I think as long as the printers were working, they, things seemed to be going all right. But it was when the printers started breaking down that there were more significant issues. Another major theme that kind of emerged when the legislature was talking about it was just that the Board of Elections was a little under-resourced. There were too few check-in tablets, I believe, was mentioned for each polling site slowed the lines down, as well as too few election workers. And those were things that the legislature, I believe, is looking at in doing a postmortem of this election cycle and trying to do better going forward. Long lines is not uncommon for more populated areas like New York City, but you know, up here in the Sullivan Casco's more rural area, it's sort of a little of, uh, out of place sometimes. You know, my normal experience in voting where I live, it's usually I'm the only person there sometimes. And 
even after work compared to when I lived in the city that after work rush was, was the, you know, the worst time to go voting because there was always a line and you would have to wait there until almost to the polls closed to get your vote in. So Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, you and Liam also covered basically the same area. And I want to see what is your outlook on this particular election? And if you have any information on the long lines at the polling sites. Yeah, I think the red wave, uh, it definitely happened in Sullivan County. Uh, speaking to friends, uh, there were a lot of younger even people that are like, I could say under 50 that they saw at the polls who they didn't see before, who they felt like Zeldin kind of brought out or wanted. I mean, Kathy Hochul, uh, for all of Cuomo's downfalls that he had, for some reason with Kathy, her popularity hasn't cut, quite struck up to what his was. I mean, but he had been here for a while, so... In fairness there, but there's been some different things that happened under her administration. The first lieutenant governor she had had their issues and there were uh, different things with that. And um, there's definitely was a push, as you guys mentioned, with bail reform and other uh, items, I think that that definitely drew out Republicans. I mean, here in Sullivan County, Lee Zeldin received 60 percent of the vote. Uh, So he beat her by 20 percent. But, you know, as is common. New York City and Albany and Buffalo are the areas that really tend to decide the election, right? So like, you know, not to say that Sullivan County's vote doesn't matter, but, you know, even if Sullivan County, if one goes one way or not, our voters aren't going to sway a, 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 a election that strongly. And then in other cases, I will say, though, on the Democratic side, you also saw Chuck Schumer, right, at the state Senate race also won, and he was a Democrat. Um you know, as far as New York 19, Molinaro did win. Uh, Pat Ryan had defeated him for the special election earlier in the summer. And he didn't, you know, Josh Riley uh, didn't lose by a lot. I think it was only like 2% or so. So that was a relatively close race in New York 19. Uh, but, you know, so he's starting out there, uh, Molinaro now. And then Oberacher won very handedly in the race for New York's 51st uh, district. I will say, though, with the composition of the 51st district, which includes a large portion of Delaware County, for those who listen to WJFF that might not know, I have been to the Delaware County Fair in Walton, New York. If you go to the Delaware County Fair in Walton, New York, which is a wonderful event, I will say that, uh, you will notice, just as an observation, politi- your personal politics aside, that it seems to lean a lot more conservative up in Delaware County and some of those middle counties. And so I think. Someone in the Delaware County Democrats who I talked to there, just I stopped to talk to both parties when I was up there just to say hello. And uh, they had said like, yeah, there's like three of us for every like seven or eight Republicans voting there. So, you know, now that the 51st district is going to be very hard for a Democrat, I think, to to win. Uh, the uh, Assemblywoman Aileen Gunther uh, beat Lisa LeBou in her race. Uh, you know, but Assemblywoman Gunther, I, I would define her as more of a moderate in some ways as far as a Democrat. You know, she voted against bail reform. Uh, I believe she also voted against recent, um, you know, New York state gun law changes in, in the wake of the Supreme Court. So she's, you know, not necessarily super far left as far as, as some of those issues. So she won her race. Uh, the 101st Assembly District is um, only the town of Neversink for Sullivan County. In that race, the Republican also won uh, his race quite handily. He's Brian Mayer. He's the uh, supervisor in the town of Montgomery. Um, who's sort of an up-and-coming political star there. So that's sort of some of the things we saw. But like 
to my original point, though, Sullivan County looks like there was sort of a red wave as far as the voting outside of Assemblywoman Gunther being reelected. But, uh, but like I said, in the scheme of things statewide, it didn't really alter it too much because, like I said, Hogle still won, and Attorney General still won, went Democrat, Comptroller went Democrat. So that's sort of, you know, I think the bigger things you see, those statewide races, um, you know, the city and stuff still has all the sway there. So, but as far as locally and what Liam was touching on, um, on election night, a lot of us who were on were pointing the voter turnout, right? And thinking, wow, this must be like crazy turnout. And I don't know the final numbers. It's possible more people might've turned out to vote, but sort of the more time you speak to people, there were some structural things that people had, uh, had were critical of. For example, you know, we talk about the lack of poll workers and, and the need for them. Regardless of whether there was, you know, we can say that was or wasn't the reason, one thing people pointed to was the number of check-in stations. I know in Liberty, for example, we have about 14, I think, different election districts all in one firehouse, and we had two check-in tables. Uh, and so when you think about that, that caused some backups, especially if you had any margin of error, any printer jam, anything that would back it up. That's why at nine o'clock when the polls closed, uh, we still had 70 plus people in line. We were on air in Liberty who were waiting, who were going through the voting process. People in Youngsville, people in Neversink, in smaller communities um, that aren't overly populated, they were, had people still at nine o'clock that were in line to vote for whatever reason. So uh, they, the, the county legislature did discuss that they had meetings with the Board of Elections to see what they needed as far as I think they said they received a list from them of some things that would be helpful for them. Uh, I know a lot of different supervisors have told me that they were critical of some of the issues that were taking place. I know everyone's working to try to get it fixed because next fall is a big local election year. We have most of the supervisor races up, which is 15 townships in Sullivan County. We have the nine county legislative seats that are going to be up. So it's definitely something they want to fix. Poll workers, the need for more of that. There was talk about more budgetary support, but there was also, as Liam mentioned, uh, you know, possibly need for more check-in systems and, and maybe more tech people because one of the poll workers claimed there are only two tech people that were floating around the entire county whenever there was issues that had to be taken care of. Um, so this is a huge county. So like if you're in, um, you know, Fallsburg and I live in Tust, I'm in Tustin fixing a printer and someone calls in Fallsburg, it's an hour drive time, 45 minute drive time before you even get there. Uh, and also, they mentioned a good point, spotty sub, cell service. So, you know, th there's a lot of factors geographically that doesn't work in the favor when things go wrong. But uh, definitely, I, I think that uh, there seems to be a willingness by everyone. And as Ira Steingart said, this legislature, they don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but they said they are unified in this particular issue that they need to address these uh, issues so it doesn't happen. And he said, it wasn't necessarily because of a lack of effort or anyone trying to keep anyone from voting, but just, you know, they're going to work to fix it. So, Chris Trowley from the Schwankonk Journal, welcome to the program. What is your outlook on your neck of the woods in Ellenville and Ozer County of what happened this past election? From, my, from all the numbers I've looked at and everything, my opinion is essentially Ulster County has changed over the last 20 years. It's now firmly Democratic County. Um, and so the, non, the number of registered Republicans has declined almost to the level of the number of un, undeclared people, I mean, un, unassigned or whatever you call it. Um, Democrats 
I have about uh, 50% and Republicans look at about 29%, and they've come way down. They used to be a Republican-dominated county, but no longer. So that's the first thing. That's the, that's the ground rule. Um, the rest of it, um, well, uh, Pat Ryan made a point of running on women's rights uh, and health rights and that's against abortion, and uh, the Republicans have got that hanging around their neck uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, they are the ones who put uh, extremely conservative Catholic justices on the Supreme Court. They are the ones who, who got that decision, and uh, they've got to live with it. Um, and I think the Democrats will be able to run with that particular issue for quite a while. And that issue, I think, just from, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not polling people, but just from random conversations with people in various places, and some of them were surprising. You know, someone working at check at checkout at, at, at uh, Shoprite, who I happen to know a little bit. You know, they haven't voted. These women haven't voted. I mean, ever or, or not for a very long time. That brought them out. These women voted, and they might have voted in just enough of a numbers to to make sure that Pat Ryan won over Colin Schmidt in the 18th. Um, you know, and and that's the that's the sort of thing we've got to look look to. You know, because every Every election result is a compilation of a number of threads. People are concerned about inflation. People are concerned about schools. People are very concerned for whatever reasons about uh, LGBTQ issues. Um, they can be pro or anti. You know, they all pile together. And, and very few people vote just for a single issue, um, although there are those. Um, but, you know, these women, they were voting for a single issue. In, in a sense, it's creating a single issue on the Democratic side that may end up counterbalancing the gun people on the Republican side, uh, which are, in many cases, single issues. So, you know, that, that, that's my take. Chris, you're just hearing Joe and Liam talk about the long lines of Sullivan Catskills. Did you find that in your neck of the woods, any kind of long lines, uh, either because of lack of poll workers or... Malfunction in a machine? No, I didn't. I didn't see any of that. Um, where I vote, you know, it's very rare that there's ever any more than one person in there. So, uh, and, and I didn't see anybody there when I went to vote, which was in the evening. So, no, uh, did, I didn't. And I didn't hear of any problems in Ellenville. It's all pretty, uh, pretty straightened out, sorted out down there. I didn't hear problems from Rochester or Stone Ridge, Marbletown. Mm, no, I don't even think Rosendale, which I think occasionally has a problem, but no. So no, I don't believe there are any problems in our area of, of that sort. Possibly in Kingston, um, but again, I, I didn't, I haven't heard of that. Thank you, everyone, for that update for the election, giving us your outlook and your thoughts and opinions of about what happened this past midterm election. Philip, let's go back to you. We'll, we'll talk some cannabis. Recently, licenses have been issued for New York State. What does that mean for us? And if you have any insight on what's going to happen to the cannabis future of New York. So, yeah, and it's announcement on Monday, the Office of Cannabis Management said that they had, quote, planned on recommending six applicants for license in the Hudson Valley. But they are blocked by pending uh, litigation. And that's um, a case um, in which a, uh, a company, a Michigan-based company, is um, had applied one of the many, many, many companies who have applied to um, recreational cannabis business here in New York State, 
And that bis- that um, application is caught up in court right now because uh, the the man uh, who's behind that company is arguing that uh, the state's uh, requirements for license holders are unconstitutional. So what happens when you apply for a license is that you rank your preference of which of the, um, I think it's 14 regions in the state um, you, you would like to be placed in. And uh, this Michigan-based company had, had listed five regions, uh, the Mid-Hudson Valley, Brooklyn, Central New York, the Finger Lakes, and Western New York. The Office of Cannabis Management and the Cannabis Control Board said that they couldn't issue licenses in any of those regions while this um, while there's a temporary injunction on uh, issuing those conditional licenses for to operate dispenses dispensaries because of this case. So we don't really know the timeline yet for when that's going to be resolved. And um, on, when was it? It was on Wednesday, the um, the Office of Cannabis Management asked the federal judge who's overseeing that case to alter that temporary injunction that's preventing the state from issuing retail licenses in those five regions. Um, to only limit it to the Finger Lakes area because that was the number one choice in from this for this Michigan company. And that if if a judge does alter that injunction, then um the Office of Cannabis Management would be able to announce the licenses for the four other regions that it hasn't been able to so far, including the Mid-Hudson Valley. So we don't know. I, I've tried to do a little bit of reporting to figure out which what the what those six companies are, but the Cannabis Control Board is um is blinded. Th- those those applications are, are blinded while it makes their decision. So we're not sure who who they are yet, but um people who want to buy cannabis legally in the Mid-Hudson Valley um, shouldn't really be too far behind, if at all. Chris Rowley from the Sean Walker Journal, you also have some cannabis news for us. Cresco Labs has opened for business. Is that correct? Cresco Labs, uh, the uh, high-end, the major cannabis uh, growing uh, company, 10 states, 25 facilities, whatever, they opened their first facility uh, in Wawarsing, the old core components before that, the old VAW building. Uh, it used to be uh, an aluminum, oh, sorry, <clears throat> aluminum smelter. Um, and, uh, you know, they're in there now. It's all been cleaned back into the end. And um, they're, they're putting in their equipment and their stuff, and they'll be growing their first uh, growth cannabis. And this will all be for their medicinal channel, which already exists. They already have the outlets down in. Long Island and New York City, so they don't wait. Not waiting for any permits for that. Then now the next thing will be they can move to building the uh, the big structure, the 183,000 square foot one, which will take on the space that used to be occupied by uh, Schrade. Well, really, it was the Channel Master factory, and uh, you know that will be repurposed that whole slab, the whole area into uh, this um, new low lying. Uh, it looks, you know, it's labs, right? Cresco labs, and they're growing stuff. So it looks like a laboratory. <laughs> so that that is actually happening. They had the, they cut the ribbons, and some of the high and mighty, like Pat Ryan, came to uh, to urge it all on. 
And so that is now going on. And now, of course, we, we heard this week that CCB has finally approved the first 36 um, retail outlets for adult use. So gradually this is edging into reality, which is great. And then more jobs. There'll be a, they will have a job fair, Cresco job fair. Make a note if this is something you're interested in. In January, Cresco Labs say they're going to have a job fair for about 75 positions uh, working in this, uh, this current facility. And that's what's something that's always discussed in planning board meetings is how many jobs are coming for, from one particular business. And it's great that this is uh, up and running and we'll have uh, new employees soon. So congratulations, Ellenville and Osa County for having a facility like Cresco Labs there. Leah Mayo from the River Reporter. Let's turn back to you. You covered legislature, the Southern County legislature, and recently a energy company, I, I guess a recycling company, not sure what to call them, Hughes Energy, went before the legislature recently to give a demonstration on their methods on how to deal with solid waste. Southern County is facing a solid waste problem. The landfill that our solid waste is being transferred to is closing soon. So Sullivan County needs to do something about this waste. Liam, what can you tell us about this company and this presentation at the Sullivan County Legislature? The county currently ships its trash to Seneca Meadows Landfill, which itself is due to run out of capacity and close in a couple of years. Um, so Hughes Energy is coming in and presenting itself as a solution to this problem. Uh, describes itself on its website as a tech company that recycles more. So I, I think calling it an energy company or calling it a tech company, it's a, a little unclear. The U.S.-based distributor for this system called the Wilson system, which is a steam autoclave that essentially takes trash, pressure heats it, and that process turns the organic components in the trash so like food waste and the like into fiber which Hughes Energy plans to sell for a variety of purposes and their pitch to Sullivan County is that by doing this uh, it doesn't completely eliminate the trash that the county will need to put in a landfill uh, there is non-organic material in the trash that won't be turned into this fiber. But um, according to the presentation uh, they gave to the legislature, uh, between 85% and 90% of the MSW, so municipal solid waste stream, can be diverted from the landfill. So if Sullivan County treats its trash like this, it can take the small chunk of trash that remains and store it or send it to one of these smaller landfills nearby rather than having to ship it at sort of great expense out of state or to a farther away landfill once Seneca Meadows closes. So that's the pitch. And the problem is that this is a, a, a technology that has its detractors. Uh, there are a group of, so there are several groups of advocates who have kind of been following Hughes Energy around New York State as it tries to set up in various different towns and kind of are advocating against them and are asking them to provide more clarity 
and Hughes Energy has not had great success so far in establishing projects elsewhere in New York or elsewhere in the United States. Uh, the, their responses to Sullivan County's questions so far uh, say that there are two sites under development. There's one on the border between Green and Delaware counties that is currently in the midst of a Department of Environmental Conservation process um, and is sort of slowed, has slowed down a lot once it reached the environmental impact statement phase of that project. And then there's one in the town of Half Moon, New York. According to Hughes Energy's presentation, the site owner is reviewing timing and requirement uh, to amend certain things for that. Reporting from the Times Union has indicated that Hughes Energy has withdrawn that an application to build a garbage autoclave facility on Route 146 in Half Moon. So projects haven't necessarily encountered a lot of success elsewhere in New York State. Their pitch to Sullivan County is that the reason they haven't encountered a lot of success elsewhere is a lot is other places are sort of waiting for someone else to be the first mover. Like this is a new technology. Other places are looking at it, but they're, they want someone else to be the first one to adopt it. But if Sullivan County adopts it, then Sullivan County is bearing the risk of being the first municipality to adopt this technology, which does not necessarily have the best track record. Um, we still need to do a lot of work internally looking at the documents um, that they've provided, but I've talked to a bunch of the advocates who are sort of examining Hughes Energy and they do not have a very strong opinion of its technology. And I think at the end of the day, the claims that advocates are making is that even if their technology does what they says it will do, it's still not the best solution to the trash problem. It's not necessarily a zero waste technology. It's not really composting. It's not really recycling. Um, so the better solution to um, the problem of increasing garbage would be to adopt some kind of zero waste um, or just waste reduction composting measures rather than this technology. So, Joe, you were also at this presentation that, that was given by Hughes Energy at the Sullivan County Legislature. What is, what is your take on this energy company and the presentation that happened? Yeah, so I'm going to take a different approach in the explaining part because I think Liam did a great job of talking about all of the concerns that people have about it. Um, starting to talk about the Seneca Meadow situation. So currently the county ships their trash upstate at $95 per ton. Uh, currently, I think uh, if Seneca Meadows closes, they do have, they've been pushing to try to get an expansion on their landfill that would allow them to live until 2040, but uh, use energy officials have stated that the DEC is not going to allow any new landfills or any expansion of landfills, uh, but I haven't seen anything that fit out there that states that that expansion has been denied per se, it's just no one really expects it to happen. But the idea is, is that when that closes, if there's no more landfills to send trash to, you might have to send it over to Ohio or Virginia or states like that. And also, currently, New York is already paying $300 a ton to get rid of their trash. And the, the belief is, is that within five years, it's going to be $300 a ton in Sullivan County. So we'd be going from paying $16 million 
a year to ship trash away to $48 million, which Chairman of the Legislature Rob Doherty says would bankrupt the county. That's his words. Uh, right now, Use Energy is proposing an R&D operation, so the county would only allow for a 10 to 12,000 square foot building on the landfill property, they would deal with about 20 tons of solid waste a day. Uh, it'd be about a $6 million investment on Use Energy's part. And so the DEC has to approve any type of R&D operation that, the, uh, that they would do here. And they've talked about if that pilot program is, if the county does move forward with it, if it is successful, then they would uh, you know, possibly like to entertain the idea of eventually moving forward with a full-time operation, which is about 400 tons a day. Uh, but, you know, they to, they brought, the first time they had a presentation, they only had one guy that was present from Use Energy, um, and I think it was like their business development director. And this past time, they showed up this week with like six people, including their CEO, um, and he spoke. They also had a gentleman from the USDA, Bill Ortz, out from California that flew out here uh, to answer some questions as well, because they've been researching this type of process out there. And Doherty asked the gentleman from USDA straight up, you know, hey, is this something, a process you approve of? And he says, yes, because we want to divert, um, you know, stuff away from a landfill, because the idea and the issue with landfills, why some people do like composting, and it is considered a good way to, to get rid of waste and such, is that when garbage sits there decaying, it also emits methane into the atmosphere, which is stated to be 84 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So there's, so the county's position in this whole thing is that they need to do something fast because it took them, I think, three years to get some type of composting operation um, licensed or whatever to the DC for within the county. So anything that they want to set up is going to take time. So they're looking at it like, all right, this landfill is going to close in like two years. As far as we know, upstate, we need to try to work on finding a solution. Some of the discussion from the legislators, like Mike Brooks, for example, has been, hey, this is an R&D operation. So in theory, after six months and however long the period would last, you could see and the DEC is going to be monitoring it. If this is good and if it's terrible, we'll just walk away. Um, also, the use energy folks to try to make their pitch were claiming that their full plant operation, not the R&D, uh, the emissions of carbon dioxide, particulate matter, and uh, I forget the other one, emissions would be lower than the threshold for the federal Title V and DEC air permit thresholds. And they also claim that using carbon filtration and reverse osmosis that up to 99% of PFAS or forever chemicals would be removed from effluent. So that was sort of their pitch as to why they think they're safe. Um, as Liam said, there's been a lot of people uh, who've come either like one nice woman who came down, whose sister lives in Harleyville, who also spoke, uh, came down from Greene County where they had another project. Wes Gillingham, Associate Director of Casca Mountain Keeper, has been very outspoken about uh, use energy, particularly how they haven't submitted an environmental impact statement yet for their project in Roxbury. Um, and how, um, you know, as Liam stated, you know, the Assemblywoman Aileen Gunther was present and she asked them straight up, like, what do other counties think about this? And he says they're all interested. Use Energy said they're all interested. No one wants to be first. But uh, Wes Gillingham, you know, countered that by saying that it's not that people don't want to be first. It's that they just don't feel like there's enough information. And I think he said, quote, no one wants to be a guinea pig in a failed experiment because there's not enough information. So there's sort of two sides of it. On one side, there's an extreme urgency that they have to find some type of solution. P 
people have concerns about the use energy project. Uh, I know that there were concerns the last time because before use energy was turning the um, solid waste into biofiber, they had been turning it into pellets uh, that would be burning off in the atmosphere, and whatnot. And the DEC shut that down as soon as they started to try to come into the state. They said, we're not going to allow you to, we won't issue any permits where you still would be, you know, allowing anything to burn off carbon dioxide, whether it's here or in England where they were going to ship them. So, so it's, it's an interesting situation because, you know, on one hand you have the county who many of which maybe weren't particularly pleased after the first presentation, but this idea that they need to find a solution fast. And then there's the other side of it where it's like, you know, is this the right solution? Because Alan Sorensen, majority leaders also stated, you know, before they even came in that he doesn't want to be the first one, right? I mean, I think Lou Cetrin uh, from the public made a, a great uh, public comment that was interesting to me where he talked about how he's been a diabetic for since the 70s and he has an insulin, um, you know, pump that does great for him, but he didn't want to be the first one to ever receive that insulin pump to see if it would work. So there's sort of that same philosophy and sort of concern, but, you know, at the same time, it's a matter of sort of you know, what is, how soon can they find an alternative? What is the best alternative? You know, the uh, use energy people have been claiming that, you know, if, when this landfill closes, where is it going to go? It's going to be on people's lawns and whatnot, which, you know, we'll know, we'll have to figure out in a couple of years whether that'll actually be the case. But, um, and there's also been talk about, you know, society as a whole needing to make changes, like, you know, in packaging and stuff that from the beginning, like, Alan Sorensen mentioned, like, why does it seem like you're going to cut your hand off trying to get your razor out in a package, like when you go for a shaver or something? It's like just things that we need to, as a society, look at. But, you know, there's been no action taken currently on the proposal. Um, you know, Doherty put the resolution up right away. Some people are like, I can't believe you're entertaining a resolution. He has claimed that when you put a resolution out, people will show up and comments will be made and that this is just the start of the discussion. And I believe he's also in the process of putting a committee together uh, to try to examine how to solve the waste issues long term. So we will see whether or not the Use Energy Project goes through or not. Uh, but you know that's something Leon and I will continue to follow. But it's um, you know it's a, me and him have definitely talked about solid waste more in the past month than we probably ever hoped to do so. Um, but you know important topic. Is definitely is an important topic. Like I said, Sullivan County is facing that fact that they have to do something about their solid waste since the other landfill is closing. Since we're taping this day before Thanksgiving, I just wanted to go around the table and see what everyone is thankful for this this holiday season, this for this past year, or anything in particular. Uh, Joe, let's start with you. What are you thankful for? Well, first of all, I'll do the most obvious one that I'm thankful of all of the wonderful people that are on this roundtable with me because as we're seeing journalism and, and media sort of dwindling across the country and communities being sort of news deserts. I do appreciate you guys as my colleagues and stuff to give different voices and being out there. So I'll start with that. And then just uh, grateful for those that support us, you know, whether it be WJFF who are supporting the station and listening, but um you know, also in our life. And I'm a Rotarian, so I'm obviously thankful for my Rotary and friends and family. And uh, and of course, the food, right? I mean, last but not least, uh, you know, I'm definitely going to be thankful for, for hopefully a delicious meal this weekend. And, and um, you know, I, I think that we spend a lot of time talking about what we don't have in society. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people in the world that 
um, you know, are struggling and that we should be grateful for what we have. So. And Leah Mail from the River Reporter, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for all the people locally and otherwise, but especially locally, who are working to make this world a better place. Um, I think a lot of times uh, we as journalists cover the disagreements between people and the conflicts that come up where uh, public commenters are disagreeing with members of boards or members of legislatures or where legislators are agree disagreeing with each other or when there are like differing opinions about how to tackle a problem. But I do think in the vast majority of cases, everyone is sort of working together in good faith to solve very complicated problems and to try and make this little corner of the world better. So the coverage may not always reflect that, but I am grateful for how, how many people are working to make the world better and for their willingness to have difficult conversations um, when they potentially disagree on how to best do that. So. And Philip from the Times Union, what are you thankful for this year? Uh, my colleagues here have given such beautiful answers. <laughs> um, personally, I'm thankful for my health. I guess um, you know we're we're I guess we're coming out of the pandemic two and a half years in, but um, I know in many places, including in our region, cases are ticking up again. Uh, the flu is bad this year. Uh, kids are getting sick with um, other respiratory viruses and um, I've, I've stayed, I've stayed healthy. Um, so I'm thankful for that. And then um, taking inspiration from, from Joe, um, I'm, I'm really thankful for, for readers who support local journalism. I've been working in local journalism in Hudson Valley for um, just about five years now. And at my previous position at the River Newsroom, we relied quite heavily on members support um to to get like a, a kind of new publication off the ground and i'm six months into to quite a different sort of role at the times union but it's similar in the sense that it's um it's it's kind of a new the hudson valley coverage for the times union is is kind of a new thing that they're that they're doing and so we have to kind of prove that we're worth subscribing to is worth reading to readers um every day and um you know as 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 anyone listening to this surely knows it's been a tough couple of decades for local news um and so folks who do take time to to read our reporting and to share and even to go a step further and, and to subscribe are, are making a huge difference um in enabling us to do the work that we're doing so i'm thankful for that well said, well said, well said to everyone. I, I want to say I'm thankful for everyone here in this group here for indulging me and joining me every month, letting our listeners know in a quick amount of time exactly what's happening in our listening area. So I'm very thankful that we are able to bring this to the listener. I'm very thankful that I could do this show. So I'm very thankful for uh, for that, that privilege and honor 
to be able to talk to you over the air. So uh, so thank you so much for all the reporters that joined, for me, joined me this past month and the previous months on the Reporters Roundtable here on Radio Catskill and on Radio Chatskill. Today, we were talking to Leah Mayo from the River Reporter, Joseph Abraham from the Democrat, Chris Riley from the Shawangunk Journal, and Philip Pantuso from the Times Union. You'll be listening to the Reporters Roundtable on Radio Chatskill. We'll talk to you again next month. Take care. <laughs>